Open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in your Bibles. We are continuing in our series, Identity Issues, God's Glory in Us, Through Christ's Work for Us. Uh, we should give some love to the Carpentry and Ventura campus. Let's let them know that we love them. Carp and Ventura. The title of today's message is Unworthiness and Wholeness. Unworthiness and Wholeness. If you weren't here for last week's message, you want to get a hold of that, you could go online and do that, or you could go to the CD and DVD table uh, up on the uh, patio there. Um, you can get a hold of that in all sorts of ways. That title was called Dirtiness and Holiness. Today is Unworthiness and Wholeness. Um, we are looking at the most Christocentric passage in all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 1, 1 through 14. Paul cannot control himself. He says Jesus 14 times in 14 verses. Almost every single sentence, he finds the need to talk about Jesus. I love this guy. Last week, we read all 14 verses. This week, we'll just read the first two, and then we'll get into it. It says in Ephesians 1, 1, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for grace and peace. Thank you, Jesus, that you give us your peace and that you yourself are the very embodiment of grace and truth and that the grace of God has been brought to us in you. We thank you, Jesus. We worship and exalt you together in this place. We ask together, Lord, that you would, for your glory and according to your purposes, change our lives today. We believe that your word is inerrant and infallible, but we also believe that it's living and active that your Holy Spirit takes your holy word and does things in our broken hearts that changes us for your glory in the world. We ask that you do that today. Lord, we, we need you to open our hearts and minds and to bless them with understanding. We need you to make application of the truth of your word to our needy lives. And, and we need you together to anoint me to teach and preach. Lord, I I rejoice in my unworthiness to stand here. I, I rejoice in my inability to do this. I want to make it, and we want to make it all about you. But we ask together that you please anoint me, that I wouldn't confuse or confound or muddy your word, but I would clearly and faithfully explain it for the building up of the church, the furtherance of the gospel and the glory of your name in Santa Barbara, Carpinteria, Ventura, and the nations. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're just taking it one verse a week here. So we're in verse two there where it says, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. And as we're discovering more about Jesus in this passage over the next several weeks, we want to discover more about identity. And we talked about it last week, that identity is a fact of being who and what we are. Identity is a fact of being who and what we are. And we all have identity. We all really have multiple identities, some of them subordinate to others. But generally speaking, what identity does for us and to us is it shapes and forms the way that we think and feel 
and so act. Identity shapes and forms the way that we think and feel and so act toward ourselves and toward each other. So it's very important for relationships and life on mission and living together in community. And last week we talked about this fact that um, forming our identity on anything other than God is unstable and unsustainable unstable and unsustainable. And we do that with all sorts of things in our culture. We form it on our, our bank accounts, our, our influence, on um, what we're good at. We're good parents or we're good spouse or we're a good athlete, uh, what we look like. All of these things, when we form our identity on them, when they start to shape primarily how we think and how we feel and so how we interact with people, those things prove themselves to be unstable and unsustainable because all of those things are fleeting. If your identity is based on your good looks, guess what? Gravity is going to kick in sooner or later. If it's based on, on, on your bank account, what happens when that goes away? If it's based on the fact that you're a parent, what happens when they leave? What happens when they go to be with Jesus? You see, we need to base our identity, our self-understanding, the way that we think and we feel about ourselves and others on something more stable and sustainable. That is the person of Jesus Christ. That's what we're trying to do here is is clearly ground once and for all our identity in the person and work of Jesus. And the, the, the main point behind this whole passage, the first 14 verses of Ephesians is this, that we have through the gospel been united with Christ. Okay, that's the big theological idea that's going to emerge. Because of the love of God and the truth of the gospel, we've been united with Christ by faith. And what that means generally is this for us. What is true of Christ has become true of us, right? His holiness, his acceptance before God. Not things like his deity or divinity, of course not. But his relationship to the Father, what is true of Christ has become true of us. Most poignantly, that the Father loves you like he loves his Son. The love of the Father for the Son has become true of us because we've been united, identified with, we have We are in, through faith, Christ Jesus. So that we've been given this new identity that we discussed last week that's talked about in verse 1. We are called God's holy people or saints. We have this new identity as God's holy people or saints. So when we start to take on this identity by faith, it changes the way that we think and we feel. And so it changes the way that we act. And even though we may perceive ourselves as dirty, And even though we may act dirty, and even though we may think dirty, the the more true thing about us is that we've been made holy. Not that there's a a moral change, so that's part, the process of sanctification, but more primarily that there is a change of position. Whereas before we are characterized by dirty and unacceptable to God, in Christ we are characterized through acceptability and holiness before God. The idea is that we are set apart. We are special to God. Set apart and special to God. Because what is true about Christ has become true of us by faith. And because we are God's holy people, his set apart people, his special possession, his saints... What we begin to discover then when we start to take on that identity is we actually want to start to live that identity out. We don't only want to be holy by position anymore. We want to live practically holy lives because incongruent living is tiresome. We know that, don't we? 
Incongruent or inconsistent living is tiresome. It, 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 it takes the life out of us. When God is saying about you, because of your relationship with Christ and what he's done for you, you, you are my special holy people. But, but, we, but we're still living in this very unspecial, unholy way. That's, a, that's, a, that's an exhausting life that so many of us have lived and are living. But you see, there's hope because we're not only a new people with a new identity, but we've also been given a new way to live. And it says there in verse 1 that we are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. That we have this opportunity by the Spirit of God in us to begin to follow Jesus in the way that we live. In the way that we work, in the way that we're husbands, in the way that we're wives, in the way that we're friends. In the way that we do mission in the world. In the way that we experience the love of the Father. We are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And, and it's through Jesus that we experience the love of the Father. The Father loves you like he loves his son because you are in his son through putting your faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's through following and doing life with Christ that we experience in an ever-increasing degree the love of the Father. And what we discover is that this love of the Father actually changes us. It, it actually transforms our lives as we're experiencing God's love. You guys remember the movie Despicable Me? How many saw that movie, Despicable Me? That is a wonderful movie. I'm glad that the vast majority of you have seen it. If you, if you haven't seen it, you've got to see it. That is a wonderful movie. Rated PG, so be careful. But it is a wonderful movie. And in that movie, we have Gru. Remember Gru? He's, he's, Gru is this villain, and he's a world-class villain. Right? He's one of the best villains in the world. And Gru has a smug self-confidence about him. You see an opening scene and he's kind of uh, headed to the coffee shop in the morning and he's whistling and just enjoying himself and he's driving that big rocket ship car thing that, that his minions built, right? And, and he's got this smug confidence and yet he's got this, this deep and profound cruelty in him. He comes across that kid who, who dropped his ice cream and grew fiends or, or, or pretends that he's compassionate. And he, and, and he goes, oh, and he blows up this balloon and makes a little dog shape and gives it to the kid and the kid's hugging it and then grew pops it with a needle. <laughs> Laughs at the kid and walks away. He, he's got this smug confidence, but, but this real tangible cruelty to him. He walks into the coffee shop and there's this long line. So he takes out his gun and he freezes them all, right? He's got this gun that turns people to ice. Don't you wish you could do that at Starbucks? <laughs> freezes them all, goes to the front of the line and just takes the next order. Gru is one of the best villains in the world and it's created this sort of confidence in him. And then he discovers that someone has stolen one of the pyramids in Egypt. It's all over the news. Someone has stolen one of the pyramids in Egypt and it's the biggest heist ever to be pulled off. And, and this, this bothers Gru. He's going to discover in, in the story that it's this younger, new villain who's got some new weapons and a new way of doing things. So, so Gru's not the, the, the big shot on the block anymore. There's this younger, newer villain who has done bigger things than he has. And that, that's hard for Gru. Because Gru grew up in an unhealthy sort of home. He grew up without a dad. And his mom was really quite mean to him. He, he has these flashbacks throughout the movie of his interactions with his mom. And in one, he's watching the landing on the moon when they first landed on the moon. And, and he says, he turns around to his mom. He says, Mama, someday I'm going to go to the moon. And she says, oh, I'm sorry, son. NASA doesn't use monkeys anymore. 
And, and then in another scene, he, he's flashing back and, and he's, again, he's obsessed with rockets and, and he's watching these rockets on TV and, and he draws a picture of it and he shows it to his mom. Look, mom, I drew a picture of the rocket. And she looks and goes, eh. And then in the next scene, he's made a little, a little model of the rocket out of macaroni. And he says, look, mom, I made a prototype of the rocket out of macaroni. And it's beautiful. It's really well done. And she looks at it and goes, eh. And then in the next scene, he's made a real rocket, this giant rocket, and she's in the backyard, and he goes, look, mom, I made a real rocket out of the macaroni prototype of the rocket. And he fires the thing, and it takes off with all the force of a real rocket. And she looks and goes, eh. <laughs> and you just see this, this brokenness come over Gru. You see, Gru in that story is a man who struggles with a real sense of unworthiness. He, he was never able to earn the approval of his mom. No matter what he did, and he did excellently, he always felt unworthy. So that now someone has outdone him in the realm of being a villain, all these feelings of unworthiness come up again. So he, he's got to figure out a way to get back on top. And, and he discovers, if you've seen the movie by just spying on the other villain that if he has these little girls in his possession who sold Girl Scout cookies and so got access to the other villain's house, that he'll get access to the other villain's house and he'll be able to steal the shrink gun that will allow him to shrink objects that he wants to steal. And, and so he, he goes to get the, the shrink gun by adopting these girls. And this is where everything changes. He brings these little girls into his house to use them as tools to deal with his own feelings of inadequacy and unworthiness. And what happens is these girls love him. He hasn't done anything to earn their love. He's not in any way lovable. He's, he's a horrific looking guy, right? He's horrible and he's mean and he's cruel and he's self-centered and absorbed. He's actually evil. But these little orphan girls, these three girls that he adopts, they love him. And what we see in the movie is that the unconditional love of these little girls changes who grew is. We see a man transformed right in front of our eyes because of the love of these girls. All of a sudden, for the first time, he didn't have to be better to be loved. He didn't have to do more to be accepted. He didn't have to be the best to justify his existence and be declared worthy. Just as who he was, he was loved and it changed the man. This is why in verse 2, Paul is wishing to us believers that we would experience grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I wish that you guys would experience grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, grace is the undeserved action and kindness of God in our lives. The undeserved action and kindness of God in our lives. And it is this grace that brings peace into our lives. And a certain kind of peace that we'll, spoke about, we'll speak about in a minute. And it's all through Christ. You see, Gru had this deep sense of unworthiness because he had experienced from those closest to him the opposite of grace. The opposite of grace. There'd be several of them, antonyms, but, but one would be rejection. One, one would be criticism. One would be disapproval. He had experienced the opposite of grace from his mom. So he lived with this deep sense of unworthiness that affected the way that he thought, felt, and acted. 
in the world toward others. But here's what that deep sense of unworthiness did for him. It it actually made him ripe to experience the undeserved love of these little girls. Because he felt so unworthy. He, He was in the perfect place to experience the undeserved love of these little girls that would forever change his life. Now what that illustrates for us is this fact. That the experience of grace actually requires a sense of unworthiness. Grace is, again, the undeserved action and kindness of God. The experience of the undeserved action and kindness of God actually requires a sense of unworthiness. What do you mean by that? In the same way that forgiveness requires wrong action. Right? There's no need for forgiveness if we haven't acted wrongly. The experience of forgiveness is predicated upon the action that is wrong, that is sin, that needs to be forgiven. Otherwise, you don't need it. In the same way, unworthiness precedes the experience of grace. James would say it this way in James 4, 6. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, let me tease this out a little bit. It's not that we need a sense of unworthiness before others, like Gru had with his mom. It's that we need a sense of unworthiness before God. It's not that we need a sense of unworthiness before others, but we need a sense of unworthiness before God. And what the Word of God does why we teach it and preach it and read it and study it and proclaim it. What the word of God does is it works a deep humility in us that ultimately says to us, we are unworthy sinners. We may look great in the display of humanity, but in the face of God, we are horrific, wicked, broken, rebellious, unworthy, wrath-deserving sinners. What the truth of God does is it humbles us. And then it causes us to rejoice in the fact that Jesus came to save these very sinners. And only those who actually see themselves as unworthy sinners will ever be saved. Look look at Luke 18, if you would. Turn to Luke chapter 18 real quick. Luke chapter 18. We referenced this passage last week, but we'll actually read it now. Luke 18, I'm of course reading from the New Living Translation. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Okay, we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 9 says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. That's that's important. Jesus told the story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness. They didn't feel a sense of unworthiness before God. And who scorned everyone else. Verse 10. Jesus said, two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. 
verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now notice, the Pharisee was indeed actually good. Jesus didn't say that what he said was untrue. From what we're able to deduce, he was actually doing those things. He was actually performing very, very well. It's not that he wasn't good, but it was rather that he had removed himself from grace. His performance by any measurement was indeed good. Jesus didn't contradict that. It's not that he wasn't good. It was that he had removed himself from grace. You see, the other one, the tax collector, saw himself as unworthy. He didn't stand in the temple. He he knelt in the temple. He didn't speak to God and say, thank you then and better then. He spoke to God and said, have mercy on me because I am worse then. God said, that's the one who went home justified. Jesus said, that's the one who goes home justified, right with God. Because again, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What the sinner in the story knew was that he deserved not the kindness of God, but the wrath of God. He knew he deserved the wrath of God. And so he asked for mercy from God. Why would one ask for mercy? They didn't feel themselves deserving of wrath. You see, we we know what it's like to feel unworthy in life, but we usually feel unworthy in front of parents or peers or bosses or competitors or, or spouses. And so we spend a lot of our life trying to compensate for that sense of unworthiness. That's what Gru was trying to do in being the best villain in the world. We spend a lot of our lives because of our feelings of unworthiness trying to justify our existence. Show ourselves to be good enough to be loved. Important enough to be recognized. The folly is that the stuff of life is not to be unworthy before one another. That doesn't make any sense. The stuff of life is to recognize our unworthiness before God. And in that, we're all in the same pool. We're all in the same pool. So that none of us can say like the Pharisee, thank you that I'm not like you. But all of us must say like the tax collector, I I need mercy from you. When we fail to do that, we become like those spoken of in John 12, about whom it says, they loved human praise more than the praise of God. They loved human praise more than the praise of God. They were more concerned about people and their acceptability before people and their lovability before people and their promotion before people than they were about God and his truth and how he felt about them. And the truth is that we deserve the wrath of God. This is what the cross teaches us. Don't miss this point of the cross. When we we think of Christ there, beaten and bloody, torn, massacred, mocked, humiliated, suffering. 
we, we mustn't only see it as a picture of how much God loves us, though we should. We must also see it as a picture of how much wrath God has toward us. Don't, don't miss that. Because the torment that Christ underwent was the torment that was deserved by us. Don't, don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that you don't deserve the wrath of God. Christ was slain because you deserve to be slain. Because I deserve to be slain. Because in the eyes of God, we're wicked before God. And the God of the Old Testament, who when Israel grumbled and complained, would send serpents among them to bite them and they would die. Who when they sinned against them, would open up the earth and swallow them. Who in his wrath would wipe out whole nations. That God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. He's still the God of wrath and righteousness and vicious justice. The only thing that has changed is that Christ came and has brought to us the grace of God and has taken for us the wrath of God. That the undeserved action and kindness of God might be present in our lives. And when once we see ourselves as deserving of wrath and unworthy of kindness, then we're ready for grace. In the same way that his sense of unworthiness prepared him for the love of those young girls, our, our realized sense of unworthiness before God because of our sins, deserving of wrath, because we're liars, because we're adulterers, at least in our hearts, if not with our bodies, because we're self-promoters and we're slanderers, Because we're, we're drunkards and we're divisive. Because we have idols. Because we esteem money too high and God too low. Because of these things that have earned for us, stored up for us, wrath from a holy and righteous God. When we recognize that in humility, then we are ready for the grace of God. And worthiness in a profound sense of it that actually scares us as a prerequisite for the full experience of grace. Because what Ephesians will go on to say later in chapter 2, verse 8, is that we were saved by grace through faith. You were saved by grace when you believed. And it's a gift of God, not something you've done in and of yourselves. And when we're saved by grace, the, the undeserved action and kindness of God in Christ, then we finally have peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Since we've been made right in God's sight, justified is a formal theological phraseology, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege. Grace is the proper theological term. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege, grace, where we now stand. We have been saved by grace, and so we have peace with God, and we now have a standing of grace before God. Now, these things are true of all believers. And Paul here in the book of Ephesians is writing to believers, God's holy people, the saints in Ephesus. 
So if those things are already true, that grace has already come to us, evidenced by salvation, that we already have peace with God through reconciliation in the cross of Jesus Christ, then what and why is Paul saying, I wish you would have grace and peace? We already have that. It's because of this. Grace is not merely the means by which we are saved. Grace is the means by which the Christian lives. Grace is not merely the means by which the sinner is saved. Grace is the means by which the Christian lives. few things here. Number one, grace forms our identity. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I recognize myself. I understand myself. I think of myself in light of the grace of God. Who was he? Well, he was a murderer who was saved, who is now an apostle who was sent. By the grace of God, I am who I am. Who are you? Who am I? We're murderers who were saved, and now by the grace of God, we're sent. There's some details in there, moms and dads and sexually abused and abusers and alcoholics, and there's some details in there. But what grace is meant to do is form our identity. I am what I am. A struggling plumber who loves Jesus. I am what I am, an overwhelmed mom who loves Jesus. I am what I am, a nervous preacher who loves Jesus. I, I am what I am by the grace of God. What that, what that does for us, what this grace in Christian living does for us, is it frees us from the need to justify our existence. I, I, I don't have to prove why I exist to you. I, I am what I am by the grace of God. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a six foot six mess. But, but, but I am what I am by the grace of God. And God's grace is present in me. I'm working through me to change me. You are what you are by the grace of God. The next thing that grace does for us is grace gives us strength. It not only forms our identity, it gives us strength. When, when Paul was struggling with some physical malady, or it may not have been physical, it may have been social, we're, we're not told, he... God said this to him. He, he, he prayed that God would make it better, and God didn't. Anybody ever have that happen in their lives? Oh, God, make this better. Really? Just like four of you? You bunch of unworthy liars. Most of my prayers are, God, make this better, and it doesn't happen. He prayed three times, God, make this better. And what did God say to him? My grace is sufficient for you. Or in the New Living Translation, my grace is all you need. And then God would say to him, my power works best in weakness. You know what grace does for us? It, it frees us to be weak. It, it frees us from the need to always be strong. Because his grace is sufficient for us. Grace is not only the means by which we are saved. Grace is a means by which we are strengthened and enabled to persevere. So that Paul would say, things are so wrong in my life. I'm crying out to God. God, please make this better. And God would say, no, I have enough grace for you to get through it. Whatever you're facing in your life, there's enough grace. Grace is not only the way that you are saved. Grace is the way that you are sustained. What do you do? You go to God and say, God, sustain me by your grace. I believe that your grace is sufficient for me. My, my, my daughter has cancer. She's had cancer for two years. I, I believe that your grace is sufficient for me. I, I'm in a broken marriage. I believe that your grace is sufficient for me. It doesn't mean our problems are going to go away. It does mean that the Christian will be sustained. 
by the grace of God, the unmerited kindness and action of God in our lives through Christ. Grace forms our identity and so frees us from having to justify our existence. Grace gives us strength and so frees us to be weak because his grace actually works best in our weakness. And the next, grace fuels us in mission. He would say again, 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, speaking of other apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I worked harder than anybody else in my field, he says. But it wasn't just me, it was the grace of God in me. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Now notice, notice, I am what I am by the grace of God. But grace never leaves you idle. Grace is transformative. It changes the way of its identity. If part of our identity is those who have the grace of God, the unmerited favor and kindness of God in our lives. It changes the way that we think and we feel and so the way that we act. Paul said, I was a murderer. But now I am what I am by the grace of God. I think and I feel differently. And so I act differently. So he lived life on mission. He didn't stay idle. He acted differently. He said, I actually work harder than anybody else in my field, but it's, it's not me. It's the grace of God with me. You see, what the grace of God does is it frees us from self-reliance. Man, if that's not good news to you, you're so arrogant and jacked up and such a mess. It, it frees us from self-reliance. It frees us from ever having to say, I, I can pull off life on my own. I can make this marriage work on my own. I, I could pull this business out of, out of the red on my own. I, I could get away from this struggle with drugs and alcohol on my own. It, it frees us from that. Yeah, work hard, but with the grace of God. The grace of God is a supernatural enabling available to the Christian. So that the Christian comes and says, I, I'm messed up and I, 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 I don't know how to get out. God, I need grace for today. And there'll be a lot of other details, but you better count on this. There will be grace. And then finally, grace frees us from perfectionism. By grace, you've been saved, not of yourself. There's a scene in Despicable Me where Gru has to confess to his minions that, that someone pulled off a bigger heist than they ever had. Remember his minions? Remember how cute his minions were? <laughs> he had to confess to his beloved little minions that someone pulled off a, a heist that was, was greater than his. And, and then what does he do? Then, as he's standing there in front of his, all his minions, he says, but we've had a pretty good year ourselves, haven't we? And that, I don't even know what that accent is. Eastern European or something. What is that accent? You guys know. But we've had it pretty good here ourselves. And then he says, look, we stole the, what was it? The Jumbotron from Times Square. And he shows the Jumbotron. He's like, you love watching football on this, don't you? They're like, ah. Like, that's a big heist, right? And then he's like, and, and we stole the, uh, what was it? The Statue of Liberty. And he shows it, but it wasn't the real one. It was a model from Vegas. And we stole the Eiffel Tower, but again, it wasn't the real one. It was from Vegas. But they're all excited. He's saying, look, someone has done better than us, but we've had a pretty good year. What is he doing? He's justifying his existence. We, we deserve something here. We've had a pretty good year. And then what he does is the most poignant part of the whole movie. He says this, but we will do better. And he unveils his plan to steal the moon, which like you just... You, the pièce de résistance. Like, what more can you do than steal the moon? You know what's going on there? Same thing that goes on with us. Perfectionism. 
Perfectionism that says, in the face of the achievements of others, I, I, I'll do better. I'll, I'll do better. In fact, I'll, I'm, I'm going to be the best. You see, perfectionism is not merely doing your best. We, we ought to do our best. That's not perfectionism. Perfectionism is an other-focused obsession with what they will think of me. Perfectionism is an other-focused obsession with what people think about you. It's always asking the question, am I worthy? Have I done good enough today? Am I going to do good enough tomorrow? And this way of living may eventually, in some areas of life, make you best in class, but it will never give you peace that lasts. It will never bring peace to your souls. You see, Paul is wishing for us here not only grace, but peace. And he's not talking about the peace of having been reconciled with God. We already have that through Christ. He's talking to believers. He's talking about a different kind of peace. When we think of peace, we think of it usually in the, um, the sense that, that the Greeks developed for peace. Okay? An absence from war conflict. We see peace in negative terms. I'm at peace because I don't have any conflict. I'm at peace because I don't have a war going on. But, 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 but what Paul really had here was not the Greek idea of peace in mind, but he had the Hebrew idea of peace in mind. He had shalom in mind. And shalom is not the absence of something, i.e. conflict. Shalom is the presence of something. It is the presence of the blessing of God in our lives. He says, I want you to have the blessing of God in your lives. I want you to have shalom. The idea is wholeness. We're broken and fractured people. We've been connected with Christ by grace through faith. We have a new identity and a new way to live. And I'm wishing that you would live according to grace and peace, which is a realization of God's blessing in your life. Wholeness. So that we complete the journey from unworthiness to wholeness. You see, because life is never going to be without conflict. It's never going to be without conflict. And the more robust life you endeavor to live, the more conflict you're going to have. Guaranteed. Peace isn't the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God's blessing in your life. Where you know that everything is okay because of Christ in me. Because of Emmanuel, God with me. You see, the prodigal experienced this wholeness when he said to the father, Father, I'm, I'm unworthy. And the father ran to him and fell on him and embraced him and began to kiss him over and over. That was shalom. That was wholeness. That, that was peace preceded by unworthiness because of the embrace of the Father. That is what Christ brings us every single day. But the older brother in that story, the prodigal, he experienced the absence of peace. Why? His declaration wasn't, I'm no longer worthy. His declaration was, I'm deserving of more than him. I'm deserving of more than he is. 
And so what, what the older brother had was the absence of shalom, the absence of peace, the absence of wholeness. The love of the father toward the other only brought to him a new sense of frustration and brokenness. One was in the father's embrace and one was outside of the place of celebration. And it all had to do with a right sense of unworthiness. Remember, we are called God's holy people, his special possession, his saints. And in popular culture and in the Catholic church, a saint is someone who has proven his or her worthiness. But that, that's not the biblical understanding of a saint. The biblical understanding of a saint is someone who has proven his or her unworthiness by repenting of sins and turning to Christ and being made new. And what this does is it brings joy. And a fundamental understanding of grace is that which brings joy. When Paul says, I, I want you to have grace and peace, he says, I, I want you to have joy and wholeness. For your life is in Christ. And Christ lives in you. I want you to live with Christ, experiencing the blessing of God. We'll get into it next week. I want you to have joy and and wholeness. You see, it's a very joyful thing when we are saved from the wrath of God at no cost to us. When we're given new identities, when we're given daily strength, when we're given fuel for whatever your mission is, to be a faithful mom, to be faithful in business, whatever it is. And when we're free from perfectionism and always having to live according to comparison, it's a joyful thing when we're delivered by those things because of the gift of grace. And this grace and this peace are just that, gifts from God, which means they exceed human strength, effort, and ability. We're talking supernatural. We're talking supernatural living for God's special holy people from the Holy Spirit as a gift of God, grace and peace. And then, as recipients of grace and peace, we go into the world as purveyors of grace and peace. We leave these doors today as peacemakers and grace givers because we have grace and peace from the Father. Lord, this is beautiful. And this brings us great joy. We thank you for what Jesus has done for us. Lord, if there's anyone here who maybe for the first time is realizing their absolute unworthiness before you, and is in need of grace and mercy. We ask that they would call upon you today according to what Christ did for them on the cross and that they would be saved. That you do that by your spirit, God. And that in our lives, Lord, you'd shape us, strengthen us, send us and free us by your grace. And this would become real and it would become transformative, not only in us, but in our cities and in the nations for the glory of God. If you guys need any help today of any sort, there'll be prayer team members up here on my right and my left. Communion is here to come and celebrate, to rejoice about this wonderful truth. And the carpets are here to come get on your face and be embraced by the Father. The Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Be found by the Father.